Many thanks to the Ramirez's and friends. Is that what you're going to call yourselves? The Ramirez's and friends for uh, leading us in song this morning. In all seriousness, we do appreciate, appreciate uh, Jesse, who's filling in for Chris uh, these weeks. And uh, we appreciate your time and effort, Jesse, as we do all of the others who lead us in song Sunday by Sunday. It's uh, St. Patrick's Day. And so I thought I would do nothing different than exactly what I was planning to do. And so I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 12. 1 Corinthians 12. It it, it is a little ironic. Let me me just say that now that I think of it. Uh, Patrick was a missionary. God-fearing, gospel-preaching missionary. What was he? 600s, maybe? who went into, uh, if memory serves me correctly, if it doesn't fail me, I think he was really in Northumbria, in in northern England, where he sought to convert uh, the heathen. It's rather ironic that our society celebrates him because he stands for absolutely everything our society despises. It's rather interesting. But uh, we do have some of his letters, some of his works in writing still around. You might want to Google them, search for them at some point, and read them. They're rather interesting. We wouldn't line up on everything he held, but he certainly exalted Christ and certainly proclaimed the gospel, and the Lord used him in that region of the world. So maybe there is something to St. Patrick's Day and just recalling the saints who have gone before us and sought to live faithfully before the face of God. Have you found 1 Corinthians 12? We'll get there in just a moment. Let me set the context. I did this last week. It's worth repeating, I think, to make sure we are following Paul, his line of argument. And so, essentially, in a nutshell, in this book, he is wrestling with this subject of spirituality. Uh, What does it mean to be spiritual? What are the marks of spirituality? What is a spiritual man? What is a spiritual woman? And for all intents and purposes, the church in Corinth has been inundated with false notions of spirituality. And so Paul seeks to rectify this pastorally and and somewhat polemically in this letter. And so Ricky's going to bring up the next slide And there you have it. He, in light of these false notions of spirituality, he is determined to show them a still more excellent way. They're not following the more excellent way. As a matter of fact, they're on a bad way. He wants to get them on the good way, the right way, the excellent way. What is it? The chief mark of this way is love. The pinnacle of the epistle. We'll be there in a couple of Sundays, the 13th chapter. So you think of climbing a mountain. We're almost at the summit. The summit is the 13th chapter in which he finally puts before them the more excellent way in marked contrast to the ways they have been following. The chief mark of love, the more excellent way, is a desire to build That is not what is happening in the church at Corinth. Next slide, Ricky, please. It is a church in chaos. It is a church because these are believers, and Paul still treats them as believers, who seem to have lost their way. 
They have lost sight of their identity in Christ. They have lost sight of what it really means to be a Christian. They're failing to grasp, appreciate, take to heart the full significance of what it means to be united with Christ through faith. That is a positional reality. I am one with Jesus. I believe in him. I am one with him positionally. That means his dying is my dying. And as far as God is concerned, his rising again is my rising again. And so I have died with Christ. I have been buried with Christ. I have risen again with Christ in God's reckoning. And therefore, on that basis, God forgives me my sins. But not only is it a positional reality, it is a transformational reality. Because once I fully grasp who I am now in Christ Jesus, as far as God is concerned, I seek to live like it. I seek to act like it. And so in God's reckoning, he has counted me dead and alive in Christ. I'm now going to live like that. I'm going to live like a dead man when it comes to my sin. And I'm going to live like someone who's been raised up with Christ in newness of life and seek to obey him and please him. And that's going to have a transformational effect on my life. The Corinthians, they've lost sight of this great truth. Therefore, they are not following the more excellent way. They are not marked by love. And therefore, they aren't building each other up. On the contrary, they are tearing down and they are tearing apart. Therefore, they are a church in chaos. And it is apparent, Ricky, one more slide. Here we go. It is apparent when it comes to their joining in pagan feasts, their eating sacrificial food, upholding headship, celebrating the Lord's Supper, using spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, participating in public worship. In these and in other ways, it is clearly evident that they are not building one another up. They are actually tearing one another down. They are tearing one another down because they are not marked by love. They are not marked by love because they are not on the more excellent way. They are not on the more excellent way because they've lost sight of who they are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's trying to correct them. Paul's trying to put this church in order and fix their focus back to Christ. Who and what they are in Christ Jesus and what it means then to be transformed by the gospel baptized, if you like, immersed in love and a love that above all else desires to build up. We've covered a lot of that ground, haven't we? One, two, three, four. And today we come to their use of spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, we're going to divide it in two. Half of the chapter this morning, half the chapter next Sunday, Lord willing, and so you found 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Ricky can take away the slides. We're done with them. We've set the context. We understand where we're at in this letter. We understand what Paul is doing, why he's doing it, and his arguments. We can now track with what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, 
but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. To one is given the spirit through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered, I hope you've picked up on this word, by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of, there it is again, one spirit. I think he's trying to make a pretty simple point. How many spirits are there? There is but one spirit. The same spirit. We all participate in, partake of the same spirit. What's the problem in the church at Corinth at this juncture? Some are saying to themselves and certainly conveying to others, I'm more spiritual than you. I enjoy far greater spiritual status in this church. Why? Because I have a certain gift. I use a certain gift. God has given me and entrusted me with a certain gift. He hasn't given that gift to you. Well, we all know what that means. It means I am more spiritual than you. And Paul's essential argument is what? Hang on. There's only one spirit. It's the same spirit. All the gifts come from the same source. So this idea that this gift makes you more important or more spiritual than someone else, this idea that this particular gift somehow imparts to you superior status in the local church makes no sense at all because all the gifts come from the same spirit, the one spirit with whom we are all baptized into one body. My friends, again, you are not on the more excellent way. If you were on the more excellent way, you would be marked by love. And if you were marked by love, you'd be using your spiritual gifts to build one another up, not to make a name for yourself in the context of the local church, not to exercise authority over others, not to push yourself forward as so important and of particular significance because you have a certain gift that you deem to be a far greater weight and significance and importance than those which belong to others. That is the thrust of his argument, especially in the verses we have read. Let's follow him through in detail. And let's begin. It's going to be fun with something tedious. All right? It's going to be tedious. Fun, I can't promise. Verse one, there's the place to begin. Now concerning spiritual gifts. I haven't lost anyone, right? Now concerning spiritual gifts. Just notice three or four details quickly. The term gifts, number one, first detail, is not in the original. All right? If you are using 
Uh, the New American. I checked the New American Standard Version, and I checked the, King, the New King James and the Old King James. If you're using one of those versions, translations, you will notice that the word gifts is in italics. Very helpful. For some reason in the ESV, or at least the edition of the ESV I'm using, it doesn't do that. What's an italic? It means the word is crooked, right? So if you're using that translation, you'll notice. That's a very important thing in the Bible. Why? Because it indicates to us that the word actually isn't in the original. All right? You got that. Now concerning spiritual gifts, the word gifts is not there. So build on it. Second point. The original word in the Greek simply means spirituals. Now concerning spirituals, it leaves us with the task of what? Sorting out. What is he referring to? What's he talking about? Some of the translators of the Bible think, well, it's gifts because he goes on to talk about gifts in verse four. But remember that words in the italics. It's not in the original. Should it be gifts? I'm inclined to think it shouldn't be. Why? Because when he actually gets to verse four to talk about gifts, now there are varieties of gifts. He, use, he uses an entirely different word. It's that word charismata from which we get charismatic. That's the word he uses there. Varieties of gifts. But it is not the word he uses back in verse one. I told you, tedious. You're still with me. Now, he does use the word from verse 1 in three other places in the epistle. And it always refers to people. Peoples. And I'm inclined to think that that is what Paul means here. Now, concerning spiritual people, this is the issue. He's arriving at the heart of the matter. This is something you've raised in a letter. In effect, he is saying to the church at Corinth. This is something that I have heard from others that you are wrestling with, struggling with, dare I say, fighting over what it means to be a spiritual person, a spiritual man, a spiritual woman. He goes on to say, I do not want you to be uninformed. And so I'm going to inform you now as to what spirituality really is. And I'm going to inform you now that you, you need to put away once and for all that there are various degrees of spirituality and that somehow these degrees of spirituality are contingent upon the particular spiritual gifts that you possess and exercise in the context of the local church. And so he goes on now, he proceeds from verse 2 through to verse 13, to make six points, six points concerning a spiritual person. And we can sum up all of these points simply as follows. A spiritual person is of the Holy Spirit. That's all it is. A spiritual man to be spiritual is to be of the Holy Spirit. To be a spiritual woman is to be of the Holy Spirit. He makes this Point, major point, by way of six arguments. Here is his first, verses two and three. He says, each of us, all of us as Christians, each of us speaks in the spirit. Verse two, you know that when you were pagans, so prior to your conversion, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand, right? 
that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. That was your former manner of life. And no one can say your current manner of life, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So follow his logic. It's very simple. We make as Christians a common profession, each of us. Jesus is Lord. The only reason we can make this profession is the Holy Spirit. This means that each of us is led by the Holy Spirit. This means, therefore, that we cannot claim to be more spiritual than others. It's a common confession we make, and we make that confession. Jesus is Lord by a common spirit who is operative, working in all of us. Here's his second argument. Each of us possesses the same spirit. Verse four. Now there are varieties of gifts, all sorts of gifts. He's going to introduce some of them later in verse eight. But for now, just stick with this point. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service. So the way of, em way of employing your gifts, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Again, his logic is simple. He is childlike in his explanation, in the unpacking of his argument. He simply states, look, there are varieties of gifts, services, and activities. Do you understand me, Corinthians? There are varieties. Now, you know and I know, each comes from the same triune God. Christ is mentioned in the text. The Spirit is mentioned in the text. God is mentioned in the text. Each is bestowed by the Spirit, used for Christ, and empowered by God. Each reflects God's self-giving nature. Therefore, Corinthians, we can't claim to be spiritually superior because of our particular gifts, services, or activities. They all come from the same source, the triune God. And they are all a manifestation of his self-giving nature. And so too, in our practice of them, we should reflect our willingness to be selfless and give ourselves for others. His third argument brings us into the seventh verse. I am not going to get bogged down into the nature with the nature of the gifts here. We're going to reserve that for when we get to chapter 14. Let's just, because it's not even Paul's main point here. Let's stay with his central thought. Each of us, he says, has received the manifestation of the spirit. So verse seven, to each, each one, each of us, no one's left out. Each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Remember, love builds up to one is given through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom and to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, 
to another gifts of healing by the one spirit to another, the working of miracles to another prophecy to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits to another various kinds of tongues to another, the interpretation of tongues, but they are all the manifestation, the working of the same spirit. So follow his reasoning again, very straightforward. The spirit imparts gifts to each of us. Notice very important at the end of verse seven. He gives these gifts for the common good. They serve but one function. It is to build up the church. Therefore, we use these gifts for the benefit of others. Therefore, these gifts don't make anyone more spiritual than anyone else. His fourth argument, he's just heaping it on, isn't he? His fourth argument, verse 11, each of us is empowered by one and the same spirit. I've just lifted it right out of that verse. All these, so all those gifts I've just mentioned and all the gifts for that matter, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one Individually, as he wills, as he sees fit, how he ever he wants to. And so the spirit, just working through the implications of verse 11, the spirit apportions the gifts to each of us as he wills. Very good. The spirit empowers our use of these gifts. I get it. This is grace. Paul's point, meaning we don't earn, obtain, or merit these gifts. The spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. The conclusion, we cannot attach any status to spiritual gifts. His fifth argument brings us into verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one body, we were all baptized. For one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And so the fifth point is this. Each of us is baptized in or with one spirit. Please understand this. A brief preview We will, Lord willing, unpack it in more detail next Sunday. The agent of this baptism is whom? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the cry of John the Baptist? He who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the agent, this isn't the baptism by the Spirit. Often hear people using that language. There is no such thing. The baptism in or with the Holy Spirit is done by Christ. He is the agent who performs this baptism. The instrument of this baptism is the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of this baptism is what? So that we are baptized, incorporated into the body of Christ. And so it is Christ himself who performs this work. The spirit, if you like, is the element in which the baptism occurs. And identity in the one body, the church, is the purpose for which the baptism occurs. And so Paul's point is simply this. Each of us has been baptized 
by Christ with the Spirit into the church. Each of us, therefore, has full membership in the church. Therefore, no one is more spiritual than anyone else. Finally, his sixth argument as he makes repeatedly, essentially, the same point. It is this, right at the end of verse 13, each of us drinks of how many spirits? One spirit. Having been baptized with the spirit into the body of Christ, Each of us lives under the Spirit's influence. Each of us drinks of one Spirit, meaning we enjoy the same benefits and privileges. Therefore, no one is more spiritual than anyone else. There's the text. Paul employs very craftily in a way these six arguments to make this one essential point. There is but one Spirit We are partakers of the one spirit. Therefore, no one is more spiritual than anyone else. And he makes the point in the context to counteract a poison within the church at Corinth, which was simply this. I am more spiritual than you on account of the spiritual gifts that I have. And in thinking this way, they have departed from the more excellent way. And having departed from the more excellent way, they are not characterized in mutual love for one another. And because they are not characterized in mutual love for one another, since we know love builds up, they're not building up. They are tearing down and they're tearing apart. And essentially, Paul is saying here, enough. A proper understanding, please, as to what it means to be spiritual. It is to be baptized by Christ with the spirit into the body of Christ. That is true of every single believer. Therefore, no one is more spiritual than anyone else. Can we please put it to bed? That is Paul's argument. Five points of application. All right, for us. Grace Community Church. Five points of application. One or two I'll go through quickly. And one or two I might elaborate a fair bit. We'll see how it goes. Number one, here's a rebuke, right? The text is a rebuke. If we have adopted the Corinthian mindset, if I think like a Corinthian, here is a rebuke. The word of God is rebuking me. And the best thing I can do is what? Humble myself before the Lord, confess it for what it is. It's called a sin and repent of it and turn away from it. And so if I have adopted the Corinthian mindset And somehow I think to myself, because of how God has equipped me or because of what God has given me to do or on the basis of that spiritual gift or perhaps plural gifts that God has given to me on the basis of my ministry, my service, my activity, that there is something in these things that inherently makes me, dare I say it, better than you, more spiritual than you. Or imparts to me greater status than you in the kingdom of God. This text is a rebuke. I wish I realized this years ago. I wish I realized this in reference to myself, but I won't go there. This is a little too personal. I wish I realized this as I dealt with others. It's always better to point the finger at others, isn't it? I can recall, I can recall being on a missions trip. Uh, this is 1990. And uh, to Russia. 
And uh, this team, young people gathered from all over the world. We had from New Zealand, Germans, Swiss, Americans, Canadians there. They were all on this team. And there was young, one young man who, more on this when we get to chapter 14, all right, who had the gift of tongues, claimed to have the gift of tongues. And he was convinced that to be a real Christian, a spiritual Christian, you also had to have the gift of tongues. Well, he, give, he, he, he convinced one young lady on this trip of, of this, and she became, over the month, it was a month-long mission trip, she became increasingly apoplectic over the four weeks because nothing happened. No gift of tongues came. And she was convinced, therefore, that what? Something was wrong with her. And that here was a really spiritual person because they had this particular gift, but I don't have this gift. What's wrong with me? Well, this text is a rebuke to that kind of thinking. You know, it's prevalent, not just in reference to that. It's prevalent when it, it, is prevalent when it comes to the gift of preaching. It is, it, is, it is a real danger when it comes to the gift that we say of teaching. It's a danger basically when it comes to any gift because we can so wrap up our identity in that gift. You know what I mean by that? It becomes us. This is our identity. This is who I am. And then what happens when someone criticizes us in the exercise of that gift? I'm going to use the word again. We go apoplectic. Love that word. Just rolls off the tongue. We, we lose it. We, we, can't, we can't handle criticism. We can't process it because we have identified our, we have taken our gift as our identity and wrapped ourselves up into it from which we derive our self-worth, our esteem, and everything else. And therefore, when perhaps the use of that gift passes for some reason, or we cease to have an opportunity to exercise that gift, or again, someone criticizes us in the use of that gift, what happens? There is Corinthian chaos. Why? Because we have subtly in the back of our brains, what? Convinced ourselves that this is what makes us important. This is what gives me significance. This is what establishes my status among the people of God. And when that begins to unravel, our world begins to unravel. All right. Maybe I'm just speaking to one person. If it's you, the text is a rebuke. Stop it, is what the text is saying. And stop it right now. Acknowledge it as a sin and confess it and repent of it. The second application, this text is a correction. Not just chapter 12. I've said it twice. I'm going to say it again. Much more on this when we get to chapter 14. Put together, it is a correction. Many of us, a correction of what? Many of us categorize the gifts according to supernatural and natural. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but just pause for a moment. Do you think like that? There are some spiritual gifts that are supernatural, extraordinary. We mentioned some in the text, right? And then there are some spiritual gifts which are natural. Dare I say, as we usually categorize them, ordinary. Anybody ever heard that before? It's a false dichotomy. It actually arises from dualism. There is no such thing as supernatural gifts versus natural gifts or extraordinary gifts versus ordinary gifts. My friend, they are all supernatural. They all come from the spirit and they are all for the service of Christ. 
and they are all empowered by God himself. The gift of healing, Paul would have affirmed this, gift of healing is no more supernatural than the gift of administrating. No more extraordinary. It's the work of God, both of them. The gift of uttering wisdom is no more supernatural than the gift of serving. Gift of speaking in tongues is no more supernatural than the gift of exercising mercy. All are bestowed by the Spirit. All are used for Christ. And all are empowered by God himself. Put away that dualistic philosophy in which we are immersed, in which we think, well, that's a God thing. And then there's just kind of the natural order. Sometimes God breaks into time and space against the laws of nature and works in a supernatural way and everything else is just natural. No, my friend, it's all supernatural. We live and move and have our being in God Almighty. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He created all things, he sustains all things, and he governs all things to their appointed end. Certainly true when it comes to the exercise of spiritual gifts, it is by the empowerment of the Spirit of God himself, and our exercise of these gifts is always, no matter what the gift is, extraordinary, supernatural. So you Sunday school teachers out there, there you are. Working with those seven-year-olds, those darlings, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 12-year-olds, whatever the age may be. And you've been at it for some time. And you've noticed in the case of some, you know, the word actually seems to be implanted deep within. There's something of a, it's childish, but there's something of a responsiveness and awareness. Oh, dare I say, I pray that God gets a hold of it and it blossoms a sensitivity to spiritual things. And you've been a part of that, teaching faithfully, preparing during the week, teaching Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. As you see that, do you know what you're beholding? The supernatural is transpiring before your very eyes, right? Perhaps you're a giver above and beyond. You give financially to the work of the Lord, build churches, build schools, fund missionaries, pay pastors, print Bibles, leaflets, books, etc., etc., etc. And in some way, the Spirit of God is using these things to edify the people of God and build up the church. And all you've done is give. My friend, that is supernatural. That is the Spirit of God equipping you, giving you a gift that you are now putting into practice in the context of the church, empowered by God himself being used for the common good. Perhaps you write letters of encouragement. You put together those cards, right? Or the phone call, the text message, the visit. And if somebody's really down in the dumps for whatever reason, and uh, by God's grace and God's grace alone, God's used you somehow despite your stammering tongue and not really know what to say all the time, but you're there, you're just speaking the truth into the situation, praying, coming alongside, and that fellow believer is just given a little hope encouraged, comforted, strengthened. You have just seen the supernatural, the work of the extraordinary as God works through his people. Perhaps you fix things, clean things, manage things, and organize things around this place. 
So what, you say to yourself, so what? So that the people of God can gather on a Sunday morning, unhindered, uninhibited, nothing in their way, gather to worship, gather to be edified in your service and use of your gift. You have contributed to that. The common good, God's people are built up through the use of that gift. We have just witnessed the supernatural. All you dualists out there, you might need to repent for that. We are dualists. Our thinking, it is ingrained in us. It's a problem, folks. No, 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 no. Here is a correction. We do not categorize the gifts from supernatural, natural, extraordinary, kind of ordinary. Yeah, no, no, no. They are all extraordinary, a work of the Spirit of God. Third point of application. Here's a challenge. You have a gift, at least one. We use our gifts, Paul says right there. Here's the purpose. Here's why you have it. End of verse 7. Only one reason. It's not for your personal use. It's not for your personal benefit. It's not for your personal pleasure. As a matter of fact, I submit to you, it's not for you at all. It's actually for the common good. It's for the building up of the church, the local church, the people of God, their edification. We use our gifts to invest in others for their good. This is the more excellent way, the way of love. Love builds up. We've been given gifts. These aren't gifts that tear us apart. These are gifts, therefore, that express that love in a desire to build up. Here you go. What gift has the Spirit given you? So that you can serve Christ. How are you right now using that gift in the context of Grace Community Church? How are you right now through the use of that gift contributing to the common good of Grace Community Church? If you have to stop and think about it and you're drawing a blank. That's a sin. That's a sin. You're sinning. That's a problem, serious problem. The Spirit has given you at least one gift. He's given it to you for a purpose, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the context of the local church. And God himself empowers you to use it. And it is therefore our privilege, our privilege to serve him this way among God's people for the common good. This is a challenge. Fourthly, here's an encouragement. Here's an encouragement. I heard one preacher recently categorize the gifts as follows, and I found it very helpful. He took Christ's threefold office, you know, prophet, priest, and king, and basically concluded, well, as prophet, priest, and king, he gives these gifts. And he gives these gifts at, to his people to mirror who he is, this threefold identity, threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And so there are prophetic gifts which involve proclaiming the truth, teaching, exhorting, evangelizing, encouraging. There are priestly gifts which involve meeting the needs of others, serving, shepherding, giving, correcting, restoring, sharing, helping, on and on it goes. There are kingly gifts which involve guiding others, administrating, organizing, planting, leading, disciplining, protecting, and on and on it goes. Be encouraged. You have a gift. Again, at least one. You fit in that. 
You have been called of God, equipped by God himself to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And by serving him in that capacity through the use of your gift, oh, let's be encouraged. We are reflecting God himself, his his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, thereby facilitating his work, thereby being the instrument through which he works, accomplishing his will among his people. Here's the fifth point of application. Here is a comfort. Here is a comfort. It goes all the way back to John the Baptist for this one, all the way back. As John the Baptist saw the Lord Jesus approaching him, he declared the following in John 1. It's recorded in John 1. Christ is he who what? Takes away the sins of the world. So he's identifying as the Lord Jesus approaches. Here he comes. He who takes away the sins of the world. This is what he does. Then he also adds, here he comes. He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It is Christ's twofold ministry. There it is encapsulated in these, these, just these two things. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? What does he do? He is the one who takes away our sins. And he is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost, Peter stood up and he preached the following. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. It's water baptism. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And so Christ came. He is the one who forgives us of our sins, takes them away, and he is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit into the church, into the body of Christ. This is the core of the Christian message. And here is the comfort. It is a gift. The Father's giving of the Son for us is a gift. The son's giving of the spirit to us is a gift. Exceedingly difficult for us to appreciate in our day because most of our earthly gifts mark occasions, advancements, accomplishments to such a degree. Let's face it, folks. Most of our earthly gifts are earned. And it is therefore very difficult for us to compute What this means, the gift of God, that he has given his son for us, that the son has given the spirit to us, having baptized us with that spirit into the body of Christ. Here is great comfort as Paul declares elsewhere. Oh, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Our heavenly father. May that sentiment capture our hearts today. And may we be overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving as we consider your grace in our lives, evident in so many ways. Give us understanding in regards to this text. Help us, we pray, in terms of our application and how we put it into practice. And we ask that in all things, we would be a people, a church marked by love and this great all-encompassing desire to please you and please you by building others up. We ask it, seek it from you. In Christ's matchless name we pray. Amen.